0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is
1: Will Straw.
0: And it's fantastic to see uh, a very old friend, old in the sense that we've known one another a long time, uh, and somebody whose work I admired for probably 15 years before I met him, and somebody who always teaches me things accidentally every time I see him. Or read his work. So now that I've sucked up to you, Will, here comes the non-softball question. This is the Don Cherry question, right? Uh-huh. Tell us what you're tell us what you're thinking about these days. What's going on for you? What's occupying your thoughts? Well, in terms
1: of sort of my work and research, I mean there's two things really and they're kind of related to each other. Hmm. One over the last ten years, as my friends and, and and students can't avoid knowing, is that I've been very interested in nighttime, in the culture of the night, um, and in relationship to that, the other thing is gossip. Um, now, I'm not going to gossip on this podcast, but I'm curses, curses. I've always been very interested in in gossip as um you know as a as dis, as a discursive, circulatory, viral naughty form um and more and more i'm interested in its relationship to the culture of the night and i'm also interested in and this is something i want to work on over the next year a little bit is how gossip gets archived in diaries scrapbooks novels blah blah blah
0: Mm. wow and something you said to me before we started recording is that you've enjoyed your work over the last five years more than ever before. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that and then let's talk about those projects that you just mentioned.
1: Sure. I mean, I I, I hate to say this because of course lots of people suffered and many people died, but I, the pandemic was, you know, one of the um, not just most interesting, but um it was a time of my life that I found very rich. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. Um, but one of them is that. You know, I'd been working on this thing called night culture, and so on. And I, one of the things I liked about it is that it brought together different aspects of my research. On the one hand, I like to do kind of textual, artsy sorts of analysis of films, and so on. On the other hand, as a Canadian, you can't always ask, but of any question, what is the policy implication? (laughs) Um, And so, before the pandemic, in terms of sort of how cities and uh, communities. Deal with their night. Some policy questions had begun to emerge. Should cities have night mayors? Um, what do you do when um, clubs are being closed because of noise regulations? But when the pandemic came along, and as we say in the night studies community, the night was one of the first victims of the pandemic. The culture of the night—you can look at the headlines: March, February, March, two thousand and twenty—and you know, New York closes down at night. Restaurants close. Um, so all of a sudden, all these issues came together at a time when they were sort of uh when things were happening in the real world at an incredible, um, to an incredible extent. And around the world, all of these people that I, many of whom I knew, many of whom I met in, um, you know, in Australia, in Berlin, in Mexico City, in Bogota. And so when I worked on the night, we all started talking to each other with regular seminars, with reading groups, with projects, with the first international night studies conference in June of 2020. And so it was just an incredibly exciting time
0: so they took away your object of study but
1: yeah well i mean they they made it uh you know so from like you know day 1 the question is what's going to happen when nightlife comes back and then is it going to be different um And not to go on and on about nightlife, but I mean, one of the recent papers I I did um, is this, was about the discourse of things will never be the same. Like, you know, three months into the pandemic and people are writing manifestos about, well, when all this is over, nightlife, nightclubs, nothing will be the same. We're all just gonna, you know, be working with local communities at low level. We're not gonna be flying, DJs aren't gonna be flying around the world for big fees anymore. And, um, you know, gay culture is going to move out of the gay bar into more communal kinds of things and weddings and everything else is going to be different because we'll have learned sort of some deeper um, <laughs> community values um, that will break with the, you know, the um, tacky commercialism of the past, things like that. Of course, is that the case now? <laughs> or, or did, Is it true that things will never be the same or are they already already the same?
0: I guess the... Economist dictum of pent-up demand basically expressed itself, didn't it, very quickly, and not only in exciting gallivanting at night, but, you know, just shoe purchase. I guess a couple of things that kept happening were more time spent with games, more time spent with streaming services of film and television drama, and more use of delivery services to the home for, we're talking about the middle class now, in terms of its delights. I think those things probably are somewhat different, but it's, we have to wait and see what the data show. Yeah. But, but in terms of, you know, going out to dinner, even going to the movies, I mean, obviously the big cinema chains have struggled to recover, but that's because they had essentially no income and in some countries very little state support for a, quite a lengthy period. Uh, And then after that, a little bit of time for people to wish to go back to those things. But basically, um, you know, those practices have returned. So point taken. Could you tell us a little bit about night Studies? I mean, you're one of its originators in my book, but I'm not an expert. Well, I mean,
1: in terms of, you know, it's ridiculous to say people began studying the night in 2014 or something, because of course, there are books and books and, you know, romantic movement and, uh, you know, throughout the history of us thinking about aesthetics and religion and everything, the night has been important. So why would there be a field called uh, night studies and that we say only began in the early, you know, 2000s, 2010s? Well, it's because and this is interesting to me and someone who's always interested in theoretical turns or the emergence of fields, it's when people in different disciplines who've been working on the night begin to think that they need to talk to each other. Mm. And so you have geographies, like my geographers, like my French uh, friend and colleague, Luke Wazinski. Um, You have people working on uh, astronomy, people involved in the dark sky movement that's about preserving our view of the nighttime sky. You have people in Berlin, Um Like uh, Dr. Henkel, who studies nighttime illumination in cities, and then you have people who look at the nocturne as a genre of painting, Judith Langendorf in France, they begin reading each other's stuff. And so the night kind of emerges as a collective object, which is fairly new. I mean, all of us had read chivalbush basically in the, in the 1990s, but that sort of stood in, you know, um, a couple of other books. But now we begin reading each other's work and, you know, and then all of the infrastructures of an academic field get to be set in place. I mean, between, you know, 2019 and 2025, I can point to 35 journal issues in philosophy, sociology, uh, in uh, classics, uh, in archaeology, dealing with the night um and then as i said you have the first international conference of night studies in 2020 there have been three of those already and blah 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 blah. so you get you know you as i said you get the infrastructures of mm. an academic um field and those are still going very well i mean this week as i just posted on uh blue sky um the um my alternative to twitter um there was an issue of Forum Sociológica, a Spanish, Hispanic, Spanish language journal um, and, and um, Portuguese about the night. There was an issue of Furia Humana, my favorite film journal, studies journal, which is online about cinematic nocturnes. Um, and then there was a book uh, Nick Dunn and Ted Edensor in the UK brought out called Dark Skies from Rutledge. That's like within four days now. They we're sort of, some would say, at peak night studies now.
0: So this is an organic, truly interdisciplinary activity. Why do you think it happened? Why do you think it got going? Well, and again,
1: I don't want to, you know, it's like if you're in night studies, you see it everywhere. You know, at the same time that this was happening, um, you had, for example, almost everybody in the cultural field thinking about how do we, you know, uh, bring people into museums at night? How do we make art galleries work at night. Um, And uh, so we have Nuit Blanche. Um, In um, Argentina, you have Noches de de las Liberarias, bookstore nights. In Mexico City, you have Noches uh, de los Museos, museum nights. And all of this, the the sense that we need to rethink the 24-hour cycle Mm -hmm. in terms of where we put culture. Um, And this itself is bound up. I mean, if you're going to have a night in Buenos Aires or in Mexico City where Cultural institutions are open all night, and there's activity on the street, and so on. Well, this is also a part sh- about shifting, you know, citizens' ideas about what's what you can do at night in a city that might otherwise be seen as kind of dangerous, and so on. So it's a, it's part of a you know a reacquainting cities with their own mm-hmm. nights, um, and then at the same time you have nighttime tourism. Um, You know, tourism industry experts will say there's been a long-term shift from island beach tourism towards kind of urban nightlife tourism. And so every city, you know, and this is happening now, particularly in China and Vietnam, wants to be a nighttime tourism destination. Um, And so they're planning all kinds of activities. But anyways, I could go on and on. But but And then you have, out of this, a city like uh, Amsterdam, the first to have a night mayor to deal with problems arising from gentrification and the clash between condo owners who don't want noise and club owners who want to make noise. And I'll stop no, my rant there. Well, <laughs> no, it's not
0: a rant. It's incredibly illuminating. When you and I were young, and even when we were not so young, when television news was on once, maybe twice a day, maybe three times a day, but probably once a day at six thirty or seven o'clock. The twenty four hour news cycle. Is surely part of this, the 24 hour television cycle, the television cycle that used to be it's time for you to go to bed now and there'll be no television until uh, the children have woken up or uh, you've packed them off to school and now you can sit down and relax for a moment whilst doing housework. Do you know what I mean? That's become a different thing. The, the television world has become... Yeah. Well, and
1: I do a course called Media and Culture of the Night, an undergraduate course, and these things are so interesting. Um, so is there a nighttime to CNN or ESPN? Well, sure, there are primetime shows where they still try to produce a sense of prime time with maybe their top sort of most popular um, announcers. And if you go in the middle of the night, you know, you'll find that it's some, you know, it, it, it's not as if the 24 hours are all equal. There's still like a 3am some guy or uh, some announcer you've never heard of um, repeating stories from earlier in the day. More interesting to me are, you know, in the era of streaming, um, I mean, one of my favorite headlines from Variety or somewhere it's now ten years old is Netflix has a late night problem. Um, because uh Netflix in particular, but other, you know, HBO and so on have tried to produce a sense of 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 well, they they've tried to have sort of introduce equivalents to the late night topical comedy show. Um now, why? Well, because they think that's how you develop a loyal audience and one that is, you know, um, comes back and isn't going to cancel their subscription when they've watched all the movies that they wanted to watch. Um, but you know, does that make any sense, uh, you know, on a, on a streaming service where they can all be archived forever, um, where people watch at different times? Can you still produce a sense of what 11 o'clock PM means? I mean, this fascinates me. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So I want to take you back, 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 as they say in baseball, if I may, to a young Will Straw and what the night was for you. It wasn't especially urban when you were growing up. Well, I mean, I grew up,
1: uh, you know, in my earliest memories are living in northern Manitoba, where I remember two things. One is the aurora Borealis, the, um, um, the um, I just forgot what they're called, the um, um the, the the light effect created by, you know, by the lights. Northern, lights. Northern lights. Thank you. <laughs> uh, this is an old man trying to remember. Uh, uh, and that was amazing. And I was just talking about so, to someone yesterday says, yeah, I want to go to Northern Manitoba and look at the Northern lights. And they are pretty um, amazing. The other thing I remember though, is we were in a small community called Norway house where once a week, some entrepreneur set up a 16 millimeter uh, projector and showed a film in a little wasn't even a schoolhouse and we would all go and sit there and somebody would make popcorn yes, and i remember seeing ghost of the china seas this movie that i thought was went on forever it turns out it's about 70 minutes long um <laughs> and so that kind of primal memory of cinema um you know later on i you know, I went in, when I was a teenager in southern Ontario, my friends and I drove around at night going to taverns, trying to hustle money, playing shuffleboard, the kind that's on tables, not on the floor as in Florida. Um, um, <laughs> and then, sure. And then, I, you know, I went off to university first in Ottawa, then in Montreal, and in Montreal, I was out almost every night in clubs, um, which is why it took me 10 years to do my PhD. <laughs>
0: What was it about the night that appealed to you once you had the chance to occupy urban space as an everyday matter?
1: Well, I mean, I, you know, like many people, I'd always been interested in the unexpected labyrinthian dimensions of cities, you know, the the inexhaustibility, the fact that, you know, you could always find something that's un- previously unknown or unexperienced. And I think at night... Um, That's more possible. And I don't mean just because it's dark, so things are hidden, but also because at night you go out and you go into strange places like clubs and so on, um, which... Reveal little from which reveal from the in to those on the outside, little of what's going on within them. So, the night is a constant series of discoveries and surprises in the daytime. Going into a department store, you sort of know what's um, going to be there, and you know, and this idea as well that going out at night, you're constantly discovering bits of culture you didn't know. In my case, the era of my clubbing was sort of the end of punk music, beginnings of post-punk new wave. Um, and so, a part of going out is just trying to figure out what's going on, and uh, you know, where are we now in all of these different musical and cultural transitions, and how do those, you know, how are those dispersed across the city um, in different ways? So, all of that, you know, is much more um, a phenomena of the night than of the day.
0: And I'm wondering here about film noir, yeah, and it's in a sense predecessor in a certain kind of French crime fiction writing and the way in which we've never really been able to come up with a, a translation into English and yet no. everybody knows what it is and there are classically two explanations for it there's the sort of Paul Schrader uh, everybody's fucked after the war all these men are broken so post-war disillusioned yeah they come back the women have had their jobs the women are kicked out of the jobs it's all fractured and there are urban horrors and then the Paul Kerr line which is uh uh-uh it's about utilizing studio space 24-7 limited lighting limited (laughs) crews and it's not something that's reflective of trauma it is actually an industrial maneuver and then there are people probably like you and me who think I think it could be both (laughs) sure
1: yeah, I mean, I love the idea that it's about that film noir was because the studios had to turn the lights down to save electricity for the war effort. That might be a little bit true. It, I mean, it's it, partly because it's, you know, then we have the first ecological theory of film, <laughs> uh, um, which, you know, so that makes it of interest. Um, now, yeah, it's all of these things. And, it, you know, I did my master's thesis on film noir and not thinking that one day I would be in a field called night studies. Um, night studies has kind of packaged my different interests in, you know, discos, dance music, film noir, um, true crime, and so on. So, um, yeah.
0: But we get on to the crime stuff, which springs out of film noir in a sense, because you've been very involved in looking at popular cultural manifestations of, popular interest in crime, the true crime magazine, not only in the Anglo world, but really a big time with reference to Mexico place. and other places. Quebec, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I should have made, and Quebec, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, you know, Anglo-centric thinking on my part. So tell us a bit about that and what are the similarities and differences that you see across time and space in that genre? This fascinates me because,
1: yeah, for a long time I've been interested in true crime. I mean, I'm interested in fictional crime, but I'm, I don't write much about it. Um, but true crime, I mean, my interest in it is not sort of a criminologist interest. It's an interest in print culture and sensational print culture, and in particular in the sensational print culture that is not, you know, Anglo, um, British, North American. So um, it began with an interest in the sort of unwritten, more or less, history of tabloid publishing in Quebec, where you had newspapers like Allo Police that for 40 years covered you know crimes happening really only in the province of Quebec and found enough of them to fill weekly issues. And so how you have this at a time when Quebec is trying to narrate its history in a one way as a kind of liberal opening from a past of political repression and Catholicism. There's this other narration of Montreal as this sensation-filled, you know, uh, playground for criminals of all kinds and and so on, and lots of melodrama as well. Um, So it's a kind of counter-narration of a you know, of a cultural history. Then when I began in the early 1990s going to Mexico and 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 meeting more and more people in, in Mexico who worked on culture and going into flea markets there, I got very interested in, you know, a similar but much bigger phenomena in Mexico, which is this incredible level of culture devoted to, you know, sensationalized images and stories about crime. And um, well, one of my... Um, A dear colleague, friend, and former PhD, of Vargas, has written a lot um, about representations of um, transgender um, people in Alarma, the famous Mexican crime magazine, and so on. And there's in the studies of these crime papers and so on are kind of have been growing over the last um, few years. Um, What you know. We, you know, we all have too many books we want to write. One of the things I'd like to do soon is take a decade, like the fifties, and look at crime papers um, in um, Portugal, Mexico, Spain, Italy, Quebec, and France, and you know, look at the circulation of styles between these, um, and you know, this kind of global culture of criminal sensation.
0: One of the things that I found very different. In the shift between the US and Mexico, was that, for example, September 11th, 2001, the mythology is that the networks and CNN and MSNBC and so on didn't show people jumping and dying. Well, this is not true. Univision and Telemundo, the Spanish language networks, sure as shit did. And similarly, as you know, if you walk around Mexico City of an afternoon, certainly in the heyday of afternoon newspapers, there are these unbelievably graphic images of dead bodies with blood all over them and their throats cut that are being sold on a, on an ordinary basis to motorists. Not something which you really see in the United States, but very much related to what you would have seen in the US as part of lynching culture, but also execution culture, yeah. and in Britain in the 19th century, when, as you know, much of sort of the beginnings of popular literature in the non-fictional sense at the time of the emergence of mass literacy or alphabetism, is graphic writing about executing people. But is there some sort of transformation that some of these societies have gone through to give a certain distance? So in the US, it's fine to have horrendous violence in fictional form all the time, but not to show what the US military and police do all the time in the real
1: world. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's many things in what you just said. I mean, I just finished a piece uh, for Voices of Mexico, which is a, a general public magazine published by um, the Center for the Study of North America at UNAM, the largest university in the Americas of Mexico City, about the body on the front page of Mexico City tabloids, where every day, as you said, <laughs> there's a body lying on a street on a front page. Um, why? Now, and also you raise the question why in um, you know, American and to a large extent Britain, British and certainly English Canadian, you cannot, it is almost impossible now to find images of crime in newspapers. Um, You know, the economic argument is that, you know, hardly any newspapers now have a police beat or the, nor nor do they have crime scene photographers. Um, The university, the, it, Newspapers that invest in photography now tend to be ones like the New York Times and Washington Post that don't want to be local anymore. So they're not out. People are running to crime scenes. Um, Also, you know, tabloids in the U.S. um, since the National Enquirer in the 1960s, when they began shifting from being sold on newsstands to being sold in supermarkets and drugstores, the bodies on the street disappeared because, you know, uh, somebody that's lining up at the supermarket with their three-year-old child doesn't want to be confronted with the image of a body bleeding on a street. Um, and so the, people who keep saying media are getting more sensational and more sensational. Well, they might be getting more scandalous and gossipy, but they're certainly not in the English-speaking world getting more um, violent. Violence, it's almost impossible to find an image of violence, Um Criminal violence. Um a well, striking,
0: um, striking difference between what we saw during the American War in Vietnam and what we saw during yeah, the yeah, war yeah. in Iraq.
1: Now, I know you've written uh, about, um, very well about violence, so it's interesting to talk to you about but this.
0: You just mentioned gossip. So, and that was one of the two themes that you mentioned at the beginning uh, with reference to ongoing interests. Could you... Gossip to us about gossip. Ho, 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 please, prof. (laughs) Well,
1: I mean... So I I finished a book manuscript, I'm waiting to hear back from publishers, about a magazine that was called the most vicious gossip magazine in American history, a magazine published between 1924, sorry, between 1916 and 1924 in New York called Broadway Brevities, um, later revived as a tabloid, but I'll get into that, or I won't get into that. Um, now, one of the things that interested me is the magazine was started by a Canadian who told Time magazine that he was the wickedest blackmailer in history, because in fact, as he was gossiping about uh, Tallulah Bankhead's lesbian affairs or uh, D.W. Griffith's covering up of a murder on the set of one of his films, he was also blackmailing all these people, getting them to buy advertising in the magazine. Anyway, so I'm interested in a certain history of a certain low level of New York publishing between the teens and the 1930s that I've spent 20 years of my life researching. And much of the researching involves sitting around waiting for things to turn up on eBay because they're not in the New York Public Library or anywhere else. That's a whole other thing. Um, but I'm interested in kind of in a formal sense of how gossip in media, especially print media, you know, does two things. It whispers. It whispers the little bit in the column that just says, you know, who was that scene with so-and-so at the store club, but it also shouts in the headlines, you know, uh, Broadway bounties would have these uh, great headlines, like, I don't know, queers blow San Francisco, now supposedly meaning they're leaving San Francisco, but the dirty, dirty, dirty innuendo in that thing is that is a is a gossipy form of shouting, um, and you know that's we associate tabloids both with the shout and with the whisper, and that combination, in a in a in an effective and formal sense, interests me.
0: Nicely put. I had two not very pleasant <laughs> in my mind. Uh, one is of the Aussie blokes in L.A. Confidential. Uh, yeah, and. The other was Prince William, so-called, uh, known to his friends as Billy Windsor. So Billy Windsor, in this massive fight with, at the moment, the Daily Mirror, but the big target to come is the Daily Mail. And for listeners who are outside that world, the Daily Mirror is a popular tabloid directed at the vaguely progressive working class. The Daily Mail is a popular tabloid that is lower middle class and viciously reactionary. Uh, And it's the next target point, but he looks like he's going to win on the Daily Mirror case. It's about phone hacking the worlds of celebrities. And even if the information isn't used, gossip being collected from private conversations. At the same time as we have the COVID inquiry going on in Britain, where miraculously thousands of WhatsApp messages that are meant to be the inquiries. Point of entry into what was really going on between ministers of the crown as they fucked up and engaged in an attempted at genocide of older people, uh, fucked up the country and engaged in an attempted at genocide of older people. Miraculously, these things are gone. And the inquiry wants more gossip, damn it. <laughs> no?
1: Yeah, no, and I mean another one. You know, I'm tempted to say, you know, nothing has ever changed. You know, going back to Confidential Magazine and the the hush hush and all the things from the 1950s. But of course, you know, it has changed now. You know, our is what's up a gossip an, an archive of gossip? Um, can we ever see it in that way? I mean, of course it is with all the legal problems of you know, of not just of what is accessible, but then what actually does survive and how and just this idea that you there's you could keep going down levels and levels of people's phone or social media usage and finding things. Um and at the same time you have I love every week, I'm sure like lots of you, I um I get pop bitch this newsletter of British gossip that's been around for about 20, 25 years, an uh, email thing, which is kind of so old fashioned in a way that it's, it's charming. Um, yeah. I mean, you're much more, you're, you're cultural studies, best Royal watcher, um, Toby. So uh, you're it's interesting to hear you about this. Yeah. Now it's interesting because in Canada we have almost no media that provide gossip about our, you know, rich and famous, uh, just economically it doesn't seem like that can survive and the newspapers don't really have gossip columnists anymore or not not at all um and so we read american or british gossip and which you know in classic canadian fashion makes us believe that you know Americans and uh, British and and Americans are, you know, lead much racier, scandalous lives where somehow because there's no media pushing English um, Canadian gossip that we're, you know, we're, um, you know, we're better behaved people.
0: One of the interesting things in all this, and I didn't know that about Canada, it is fascinating, is that there's a sort of Foucauldian element to this, which is that gossip will be about sex and that sex will tell the truth of the person. Yeah. So we'll really know about X, Y or Q celeb through salacious personal details, often about sex. And if not sex, then drugs. Yeah. But there's a a sense of the, the liminal being the space really to know someone, to understand them that I think in part impels these things. I totally agree. I mean, I just finished an article.
1: I was at a conference in uh, the spring in Toronto on celebrity in the francophone press, meaning Quebec, France, North Africa, I mean, places where there's a francophone press. And so I've been, another book I want to write is called Tabloid Metropolis about Montreal's incredible culture of tabloids in the 1960s. But you look at the the beginning of the 60s, you get the sense that none of the tabloids in Quebec want to write anything about the personal lives of the stars because we're all family and you don't say anything bad about any of your family. Then by the mid 1960s, there's a shift where, you know, if someone's um, divorcing or they're caught in an affair, um, you don't write an expose piece denouncing them, but you will let them confess. And this is so Foucauldian. So you're still in a kind of solidarity with the stars. And it's only by the 1970s that then the, the, the publications will actually denounce and expose and destroy reputations. But there's a slow move from not saying anything about a private life to letting the stars themselves confess, cry, um, and so on to then just making them the victims, if you like, of a vicious you know, um, apparatus, a machinery of, of reputation destruction. But it's that middle term uh, that interests me, when the truth of the star is in um, the confession that they're willing to give a particular publication or reporter.
0: In the interstices between politics and stardom and these issues, where does Margaret Trudeau fit? Uh, for younger listeners, okay. she was the wife of the, the then Prime Minister of... Yes, yes. ...Canada, Canada. Piette Trudeau, <laughs> uh, And uh, she became a denizen of um, a rather well-known club in New York City. And shall we say, spent time with a number of well-known men who... Members were young, of
1: the uh, Rolling Stones and so on. Yeah. Members um, of the
0: Rolling Stones.
1: Well, I mean, our first reaction as Canadians is like, wow, we were playing in the big leagues of gossip. <laughs> <Can you> imagine <laughs> that, a Canadian politically connected person you know being covered by american tabloids and and involved in gossip that also involved you know Keith Richards or whoever, Mick Jagger um of whoever you yeah, know those are relatively isolated and again you know that could, that would have been a hundred times bigger if we actually had an english language um gossip tabloid press right. um you know like the national Enquirer. and it's so like- it's it, I mean, it's been me interesting the last bit. few years.
0: Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, Will. I interrupted you. Go ahead.
1: People have tried that you can still buy a Canadian version of Hello, the British uh, <laughs> tabloid, but it's so kind of, and it's the only one that still survives. But I mean, it's mostly royal watching with like one Canadian celebrity, you know, <laughs> a story about them to Canadianize it. But there's really, anyways, go on.
0: So Margaret Trudeau and the scandal surrounding her or scandals didn't mark any kind of watershed any kind of change in Canada when it came to gossip about public figures
1: no I mean if you trace it over time you can certainly note the shift from the salacious scandal mongering to the way in which Margaret Trudeau um, has sort of became emblematic of how you treat you know mental illness or psychological difficulties and so Mm -hmm. her sort of rehabilitation over the last like it's 50 years now is one index of shifting attitudes toward this but you know it still remains relatively minor in the big scheme of things
0: i i I seem to think i think i think that with the end of the marriage of her son the current prime minister of canada there doesn't seem to have been a huge scandal-mongering set of stories about that
1: No, I mean, I can't, you know, I still have no idea. Maybe I haven't read everything, but um, I would say certainly people are not hanging on the latest detail, or there just seems to be an absolute absence of curiosity.
0: So do you think there's a social function performed by gossip? And is gossip symptomatic of something?
1: Well, I mean, when I teach gossip, I go down what people say are the the, what sociologists have said about the functions, you know, one is simply that they're, you know, a kind of Bactinian overturning of power. You get to talk about the people more powerful than you. The other more interesting is that um through gossip, we, a society kind of calibrates its moral standing on things. You know, if we can't judge ourselves or our friends in terms of how they act in relation to their family or their spouse, we we use famous people's lives let's say the royal family as ways of working out um these things there's the argument i mean george Simulson you know once said the stimulus is just the pretext for um conversation don't quote me that's <laughs> not exactly but the idea that gossip is just you know it's the phatic function of communication it just yeah, keeps channels yeah. going and, like like yeah.
0: sports between many yeah, men yeah yeah,
1: yeah. Like
0: it's it's a means of Gaining intimacy doesn't mean that the subject matter is irrelevant and uninteresting, but it's safe terrain. Yeah, yeah. Even though it may yeah. involve deep passion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so there's, and yeah, I mean, because the interesting thing about gossip is originally it was seen to be something of small towns and closely knit family circles. Right. Um, then it became sort of the very emblem of a uh, degraded mass popular cultural machinery.
0: Right. 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 Wow. That's absolutely fascinating. Will, I've got a couple more questions for you and then I'd like to throw it open to you to conclude by just adding or subtracting anything that you want. <laughs> so the first question is to ask you where people can find some of this work of yours that you've done, not just today and yesterday, but in the 80s, 90s and 2000s. So greatest hits and latest memories of Prof. Straw.
1: Well, the best way is to go to my website, website willstraw.com. That's willstraw.com where I put up all the articles I'm allowed to put up for download and a lot of those that I probably um have not. So um and if you're interested in night culture, I have another site, the urban night.com, Urban the Urban Night one word, um, where every day I have news of developments in the world in the real world of night, as well as lists of publications and uh conferences and so on related to the culture of the night. But willstraw.com is the way to get my uh publications if you're interested. I just our operators back... are standing by.
0: Sorry. <laughs> that's to take your call. Cool. I just looked up The Urban Night and it says on the DuckDuck Duck site in, that Adam Brates it, we would like to show you a description here, but the site won't allow us. What?
1: The, TheUrbanNight.com?
0: Yes. No, when I looked up The Urban Night in a search engine. Oh, okay. It gave me the address, but then it said, we would like to show you a description, but the site won't permit this.
1: Is this, uh, this is a, a an AI tool now built into your browser or?
0: Uh, no, I uh, use DuckDuck.
1: Okay, I don't know DuckDuck.
0: On top of Chrome because it doesn't sell, or it claims it doesn't sell right. your information.
1: Okay, hmm. I didn't know. Um, well, if you have a chance later to try searching it outside of DuckDuck.
0: Um, <laughs> well, I, no, I've, I've, got it. I've got it now. You've got a to special dossier of La Furia Romana, And actually, uh, I've I've recently read your your recent piece in that.
1: It's Uh, a bit artsy-fartsy, that article, but whatever. It was fun to write.
0: (laughs) So, because Will's work is available in the sorts of spheres where public intellectuals operate, but also in high scholarly journals as book chapters in editor collections, in greatest hits of this, that, and the other. And it's about a vast array of topics, lots of the things we've talked about today, but a lot, for example, on music. So that's my second question, and obviously this relates to the night stuff, and you've touched on it tangentially. When you got involved in writing about music and the popular, there wasn't a lot of cultural studies work dedicated to that, there came to be a lot more. And it started out, or some of it anyway, with a kind of rockism, an implicitly white rockism, as an agent of progress. Now, I don't think you were ever really part of that uh, in any sense, but it's almost stood in for the white industrial male proletariat in Marxism as the agent of historical progress have you ever seen bits of music as agents of social change
1: oh okay um because i was going to talk about um you know my feeling is the political social importance of music is that you know there are many places in which music is heard um there are many groups of people that music brings together and that oh, the for me the important social effect of music is the way it produces particular um combinations of population if you like around it that sound, that mm-hmm. sounds like a sort of very um even jargonistic and also not very fun way of talking about music. But when I go to a conference and I notice this or not a conference, when I go to a concert or a show and notice that this show is bringing together, you know, different kinds of racialized and let's say, ethnicized um, subjects and that there are particular balances of genders and sexualities and maybe different kinds of intergenerationality. That to me is the politics music that can, can constantly reshuffle populations. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I'm always, You know, I remember hearing, I even referred to this, you know, a huge stadium progressive rock concert that was probably whiter than a KKK rally. Well, to me, that's the most important thing about that event. The music might be doing certain kinds of things. It might be claiming politics and so on. But if it produces such an exclusivity um, in the community that comes together around it, to me, that's the important thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested for me Political music is music that, you know, reshuffles, um, remakes or makes different kinds of ways of being together.
0: Wow, that's a fantastic answer. Fantastic answer. So in a sense, it's about syntagmatic form. Yeah, yeah. One yeah. get yeah. semiotic for, for a moment, where different paradigms of identity are present and form a syntax.
1: Yeah, and but- the music can itself be legible in different ways to different parts of those communities that come together, but music's ability to offer that multi-legibility, shall we say, is, you know, to my mind, is one of its possible great accomplishments.
0: I may even have read this in a book you edited, but there's that great remark by Muddy Waters about um, Los Rolling, where he said, the Rolling Stones, they stole my music, but they gave me my name.
1: Okay, I don't remember either having heard that or certainly not using it or seeing it in a book.
0: It's also possible I invented it because, as you know, Will, I do invent shit, not deliberately most of the time, but accidentally. And I was saying to someone the other day, I think what happens is that I think I've read things or heard things that I haven't, but that actually are quite true in some sense that resonate quite powerfully, right? In the same way that Bridgerton or any other historical drama on television or in cinema is brought to the bar of affronted history uh, because it gets buttons wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Or coaches, or it has black dukes when there shouldn't be any, you know, this kind of crap, Mm. rather than looking at whether the social relations that it invokes uh, are in some way representative. But um, I think about how in terms of, for example, what became rock music, those often Jewish guys who worked in British art schools and went to the East coast of the U S in the fifties and bought race records and brought them back and then shared them with their students like Mick and Keith and John Lennon and so on. And then when those guys in the so-called British invasion arrived, not only were they asking where's Elvis, which is what gets reported. Mm -hmm. They were saying, where's muddy waters.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. Where's little Richard. How can I meet Chuck Berry? And that is part of this extraordinary moment in race records, having some kind of eventual crossover, right? Without wishing to say that the white Brits were the saviors of black music. No,
1: I mean, there. you know, that's, of course, that's an incredible, we could say, Warm image of of musical interconnection. It's also a kind of extraction too. Um, yeah. You know the movement, the romantic stories of you know uh, sailors in Liverpool bringing back race records. Well, that's also a, you know a minor story of pillage to a certain extent. It has effects that we might welcome, but you know it's also like other kinds of couple of commodities and uh, and the ways they move and are taken from one place to another. Sure, but see, yeah, those are the kinds of. I mean, it's not like no one has studied this but um, or studied musical flows, um, but, you know, I think there could be lots more interesting
0: work on that. Because it's an important mythology and one that legitimizes the Stones and the Beatles, perhaps more than yeah, yeah, yeah. anything else in their prehistories, as it were. So, Will, now I'd like to invite you to hop in with things we haven't touched on or return to things we have, if there's anything you'd like to add or subtract.
1: I don't think there's anything I want to subtract in the sense that I already regret having said. you know I, you know I'm someone from who for whom most of the things I work on are also my hobbies I'm someone who most of the things I work on I have to collect at least in part because they up until very recently have not been collected by you know archives and libraries and so on mm-hmm. so that's interesting you know it's frustrating sometimes um you know I guess I'm interested in off center places of cultural production like Quebec and well, I mean, I'm not going to say Mexico is certainly not off center um, by any means, but it's often left out of histories of certain kinds of popular culture. Um, and I keep finding new objects to pursue through that. And uh, um, as I think as a Canadian scholar, I'm much more interested in, in think, how things get made and how they find markets than I am in. Processes of reading, for example, which, you know, American Cultural Studies famously is interested in. Um, the struggle to get things made and and out into the world, to me, is more interesting than how readers might overturn their meanings and produce fan communities and so on around those. That's just my own particular bias. But I don't want to go back into that whole cultural studies uh, debate about whether we're to, you know, wh- whether we're looking for resistance everywhere, it, it, you know.
0: I think you've just summed up beautifully what uh, is a dilemma for many of us. So thank you so much, Will. I'd like to do two things. One is to invite you personally back to the pod in the future, but the other is to suggest, and I've done this recently with a couple of people as a proposal, that maybe some of your fellow nighttime fetishists could gather around. We'd have to do it at nighttime. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be delighted
1: to put together a group for that, yeah.
0: That would be really great. So, all right. Well, thank you very much, Will. And as I said, I will be uh, adding your uh, the two website addresses to this. And I really appreciated chatting to you.
1: I've really enjoyed this, Toby. Take care. Yeah.